pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for sending Jesus to save us, to rescue us, to redeem us, and to bring us back into relationship with you for any who believe in him. I thank you for everybody here this morning. I pray that as I speak your word, that we'll be willing hearers. Amen. So here's the question. Why do I believe in Jesus? Why should anybody believe in Jesus? And you know, I, I, I got to know Jesus when I was 14. So I've, I've done a long journey with him. But sometimes it's really hard to uh, communicate that to other people about how real Jesus is. And you know, wherever we are on our journey, whether we believe at this point or don't believe, then there's certain questions come up. And the, and, and the biggie, big one is, why should I believe in Jesus? What, what is it that makes all this real? What is it that distinguishes what we do this morning from just going along to a social club? What is it that makes church more than a group of people who read the same book and sing the same songs? What is it that, that makes this personal? Because without being personal, Jesus will never be real to you. So you can't inherit Jesus and you can't catch Jesus. He's not like COVID. He's not like a virus that you catch. Is a person who is alive and is looking for a relationship with you, and it's personal. So it all stands on that question of, is Jesus really alive? You know, that's where I got to as a 14-year-old. I got saved just before Easter in 1975 as part of the church's mail drop Easter campaign and an invitation to their youth club. So pretty much like what's happened this weekend. And, and I, got, I got saved. I became a believer then. And the question I'd always um, ask myself is, what is the basis for why I believe in Jesus? So I'm going to talk about that this morning. So it's slightly different this morning to the, the style or whatever of uh, what I do other weeks. But I want to talk to you about what today is about, which is Jesus being alive, the resurrection. And, you know, people talk about all sorts of things in church, and they talk about all sorts of things in any other religion, and they talk about all sorts of things in the world. In fact, there'll be people right now discussing politics, discussing football, discussing all sorts of things, Easter bunnies, chocolate eggs, is the turkey gone time for it to go in the oven, what we're having for lunch, what we're having, all those things. And we, we talk about all sorts of things around Easter, but Easter is actually just about one thing. And that one thing is the resurrection of a living saviour called Jesus. And Jesus is the reason that we celebrate Easter. Jesus is the reason 
that we could next week. Jesus is the reason we came last week to church. Jesus is the reason we do all the things we do. And so it all comes back to Jesus. And the Apostle Paul put it like this. He said that if Jesus' resurrection isn't real, we're the biggest idiots on earth. That's a paraphrase. Okay? I'll read you what he really said in a minute. But if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then what I'm telling you right now is without basis and without hope. Because I would be proclaiming somebody who gave you eternal life and doesn't have it for himself. The whole Christian religion rests on whether Jesus raised from the dead or not. That's why this is actually the most important day in the church's calendar as we remember that. Now, one of the things that, that I've heard in my, um, as Joyce pointed out, lengthy journey with Jesus, <laughs> this one of the things I've heard is, well, you know, these Christians, these, these, these people who call them Christians, it's just blind faith, isn't it? You know, you, you're just kind of hoping, everything's disproved, you know, what you believe and all that sort of thing. And most people, in fact, Almost all people will say that without reference to ever having looked at the facts for themselves. And because it's something they've heard, and, it, and it's easy because you can say that and then get on with the rest of your life. Realizing that that life has an endpoint. And that at that point, you're going to want to know is Jesus real or not? And you see, one of the things we, we learned in that whole COVID thing is follow the experts. Follow the science. Do you remember them saying that? And then ignoring all the science. Do you remember that sort of thing? Follow the science. Follow the experts. What, what, what do people say about this? What's, what are the facts? You see, I don't... I, I, don't I, I want you to understand this right at the start. I don't have blind faith. A real Christian does not have blind faith. A real Christian has faith in actual facts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A real person who walked this earth, did what he said he would do, was crucified for what we did wrong, and then raised from the dead. And that is not something that is made up. It's not a story. It's a fact. It's a fact of history that is more positively attested than any other fact in the ancient world. Yes. And not just by a little bit, by multiple, multiple times. How many of you believe that Jesus, uh, Julius Caesar existed, lived, and who he was emperor of Rome? I have to tell you, there's very minimal facts that will prove anything about Julius Caesar compared to the facts about the resurrection of Jesus. And that might surprise you because it's something we don't think about. And, it, and, it, and people go, well, you know, you've just got blind faith. I haven't got blind faith. I'm, I would be rubbish at having blind faith. You know, I, 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 was, I studied science at school. I'm an accountant. <laughs> Accountants worry about decimal points. I haven't got blind faith. If you can't show me and prove it to me, I don't want to know. And so what have we got? What I have is faith in facts. 
I have faith in facts. I have faith in a real person who is alive right now and I have a real relationship with. Here's what Paul said. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is in vain and your faith also in vain. Yes, and we're found to be false witnesses of God because we testified that God raised up Christ who he didn't raise up if the dead don't rise. For if the dead don't rise, then Christ isn't raised up and if Christ is not raised, your faith is in vain and you're still in your sins. That's him saying everything about Christianity stands on this fact. And that's why I have absolute faith in Jesus. He's got my life. I trust him absolutely. I, I live for him. Everything I, 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 I breathe and uh, set as my purpose in life and my goals in life revolve around this real person who I have a real relationship with called Jesus. You see, we aren't talking about do I want to believe this so I've got a bit of a, a ticket so I can get to heaven. We're talking about if I don't believe this, if I don't do something with the fact of Jesus, I am denying historical facts. You see, when you look at the facts about Jesus, you're only left with one, two conclusions. Either I'm going to follow him or I'm going to turn away from him and get on with my life and take my chances. So let's ask the, let's ask the experts. Here's, here's some of the things that experts have said. You might recognize some names if you're academic. In fact, if you've ever uh, read children's books, you'll recognize at least one of the names. But there's a guy called Professor Arnold, and Professor Arnold was a professor of history at Oxford. So he's top guy at Oxford. I, I know he won't be quite the standing as professor of history at Cambridge, but apart from that, he's the top guy in history. He, he, he knows what he's doing. And Professor Arnold uh, wrote a book called The History of Rome. So he wrote all about Julius Caesar and these sort of people. And this is what he said. Remember, he's a professor. He studies history. Um, these guys, most of them are, you know, they, they ne didn't necessarily grow up as Christians or anything <coughs> like that. They're looking at it from an academic point of view. This is what he said. I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort than the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. How many of you heard of these textual critics guys? The guys that like to get all the bits of the Bible, rip it apart so it means nothing, and then put it back together again. Well, one of the, the, the prominent uh, guys who was a textual critic was called Bishop Westcott. Um, he was actually based in Cambridge. Have you heard of Westcott House on Jesus Lane? That, that's, that's named after him. And this is, this is what he says as a textual critic. Taking all the evidences together, it's not too much to say that there is no historical incident better or more variously reported than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not been, you know, not having grown up in academic circles, I wanted the accountants and lawyers to really to comment on this. So went and found myself a lawyer. And uh, this lawyer guy, he's called Simon Greenleaf, and he's one of the top lawyers ever to come out of Harvard in the US. He wrote this uh, seminal work that underpins the US legal system 
called the, the, the law of evidence, how evidence works in law. And this is what he put. So, well, I'll, I'll give it his proper title. He wrote a treatise on the law of evidence. And this is what he said. According to the laws of legal evidence used in courts of law, there is more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus than just, any, uh, just about any other event in history. Now, I'm, I'm just asking the experts. Here's one you will all recognise who actually was like a, a superstar academic, but he's better known for writing about lions and fawns and those sort of things, called C.S. Lewis. And this is what he said. Uh, just to give him his proper title, C.S. Lewis is the author and professor of medieval, or was, medieval and renaissance literature at Cambridge University. And this is what he said. There is no such historical claim in religion as in Christianity. I am too experienced in literary criticism as to regard the Gospels as myth. <coughs> okay, so we've asked the experts. That, that's what they say. I don't have the time, and you guys don't have the time, because there's Easter lunches to do and Easter eggs to eat and all that sort of thing, for me to go into everything that got them to their things. But it's a bit like, you know, when, when we used to have the, the, the briefings, you, you didn't know what, all the stuff that was underlying it. We just asked the experts what we should do. And that's their conclusions. These are the guys who were paid to study this sort of stuff. Now, where's a lot of this evidence for Jesus come from? Well, you might be interested to know that a lot of the evidence about Jesus, not all the evidence, comes from this. Now, how many of you have ever been in a discussion where somebody wants to shift the balance of the argument and cheat by saying, keeping the Bible out of it, how can you prove to me about Jesus? <laughs> keeping the Bible out of it. Yeah, how many of you have heard that? You know, take the Bible away and, 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 and that's it. Well, Here's my answer that I give to that question. Why should I keep the Bible out of it? It's a bona fide historical document. Why, why should I? Why, why should you cheat and me not be allowed to cheat? <laughs> what if I came along and said, keep Richard Dawkins out of it? You know, like, why? Keep Darwin out of it. No, you can't keep the Bible out of it. It's a real document. Let me, let me show you. Basically, when people study uh, text and documents that are uh, sort of not current, not modern, the way they work out the authenticity of those documents is that they look at certain factors. So this is how they, they do it in academic circles. So let's say you found, let's say you went out for a walk one day and you fell down a hole in Cambridge and you found some little, little plaster jars and they had in them some scrolls. How would you work out the, whether they're accurate and authentic? And this is the test that they apply. They, they apply it on the basis of this. How many copies of this do we have? What time interval is there between the original events and when this was written down? 
Because you want to know that because things change over time, don't they? And how many differences is there between all the different bits we've got? Now, when you look at this, you, can't, you reach the conclusion that there's absolutely no way you can keep the Bible out of it. For instance, existing copies of the, the, the manuscripts, ancient manuscripts, existing copies, 24,000 in this world. The nearest you'll see on that is Homer's The Iliad, which surprisingly at the time was also a religious text because they believed in all those gods. Uh, there was only 643 copies of that in existence. There's 24,000 ancient manuscripts of the Old and New Testaments. So can you see how much bigger the New Testament is than all these other people that you think and we all acknowledge are real and we think we know all the facts about? Look on there how tiny Caesar is and Aristotle and these other guys. I, I particularly like that name, Euripides. I think I've got to go for that as my middle name. Have my name, Trevor's frowning at me. <coughs> what about the interval between those manuscripts we've got and the actual events? Well, the interval between all the manuscripts, or a lot of the manuscripts we've got of Jesus, is between 40 and 70 years from Jesus uh, walking the earth. Why is that important? Well, it's important because it's a tiny interval. Remember that. We're not talking like printing presses and books here, or, or the internet. We're talking about scrolls and, and wax tablets being carried around. So a lot of it was uh, initially conveyed by people's uh, recounting of their experiences of Jesus, like the apostles. And as the apostles come towards the end of their life, they write it all down because they want it to be there for posterity, for eternity. And so the, the time those manuscripts are written, those early ones out of that 24,000, at the time they're written, um, thousands and thousands of people are still alive who saw Jesus. And they're all there and would have been able to say, that's rubbish. But they didn't. And they couldn't prove it was inaccurate at the time because they knew he'd walked the earth and they knew what had happened. So what about these other manuscripts? Well, you can see that the best we get is Homer's Iliad. And the earliest manuscript we have of Homer's Iliad compared to when it was actually written and Homer lived is actually 500 years after Homer died. You can see Sophocles, 1,400 years after he died. The stuff about Caesar, 1,000 years after he died is the earliest manuscript, the earliest copies we've got of that being written down. And you want me to keep the Bible out of it. This is what another expert says. Frederick Kenyon, Frederick G. Kenyon, he's a he, said, he was, he's venerable and probably in heaven by now. He was the venerable and uh, the director and principal librarian of the British Museum. So he knows what he's doing with manuscripts. Would you agree? This is what he said. The interval between the dates of original composition and the earliest external evidence becomes so small as to be, in fact, negligible. This is by those tests that they applied. 
The last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us as originally written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. Now, what about if we've got 24,000 manuscripts, how well do they all agree with each other? Because it's no good having 24,000 copies that don't say the same thing, is it? So how, how close are they? Well, let me tell you this. Across those 24,000 manuscripts that we've got, there are differences, because there are differences, in 40 lines. That's, there is doubt over just short of 400 words in those 24,000 manuscripts. Apart from that, they agree. They, they agree. What, what, what's the point of that? Well, you know those copies of Homer's Iliad that were written all those years after he died and there's not many of them compared? Well, in those much smaller sample, there are 764 lines that they actually don't know which is the right ones. So you want me to leave the Bible out of it. Here's, here's the point, and I want you to get this right through. So this is what Kenyon, that guy says, the director of the British Museum. It cannot be too strongly asserted that in substance, the text of the Bible is certain, especially is this the case with the New Testament. The number of manuscripts, early translations from it, and quotations from it in the oldest writers of the church is so large that it's practically certain that the true reading of every doubtful passage is preserved. This can be said of no other book in the world. I'll come back onto that. But here's the point I want you to get. Not one, in those 40, you know the 40 lines, the less than 400 words, and there's not one single doctrine of Christian faith that rests on a disputed reading. Not one. The, the things like, does it actually say prayer and fasting or does it just say prayer? You know, it, it's that, that sort of where there's a word missing. So this is, this is like solid stuff. And like, I don't have blind faith, I have faith in facts. What about corroborating writings? Because, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go along with you if you want me to leave the Bible out of it, Okay. What about other writings, other things that people say? Well, there's this guy called Sir David Dalrymple. They all have great names, don't they? And, and he was asked this question. And, and he was basically asked this question, leave the Bible out of it, what you've got. So he said, suppose that every copy and every manuscript, all 24,000 of the New Testament, were destroyed by the persecutors of the church and set fire to and burnt. Suppose that happened. And how would we know what to believe? Okay, so we'll just take the Bible out of it. How would we know what to believe? So he investigated this. This was actually, you know, the, 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 the thing that was at the center of his academic career. And he says, this question roused my curiosity. And as I possessed all the existing writings of the fathers of the second and third century. So there's the people that, that lead the church as Christianity spread across the world. And he had this collection of all the writings that these guys had written. And, and he did this search, and he said that in all these writings, if, the, if all those 24,000 manuscripts didn't exist, I would still have the Bible 
all except 11 verses. In other words, the, the, these people in the first, the first and second century, all these people wrote it all down and it's all there. Because they're doing what I'm doing. They're teaching it. They're preaching it. They've got verses not on the screen, on, like they, 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 they're reading them out. And they write it all down. And the Bible is there even if there's no Bible manuscript. How cool is that? I thought it was cool. Yeah, well done. Well done, Jesus. Well sorted that one. Anyway, so that's, that's kind of the ask the expert. But that's not entirely why I believe. There's a lot, lot of things that actually get you in here that aren't just counting numbers of words in manuscripts. And here's the thing that gets me in here. Because how many of you heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Any, any clue what they are? Okay, so the Dead Sea Scrolls are manuscripts primarily relating to the practices of a religious community called the Essenes. And in there, they had all these manuscripts of the Old Testament. And so, like we've got lots of New Testament manuscripts, the Dead Sea Scrolls is really important because it showed, when they, they found it, that all these Old Testament manuscripts, so this is, I can't remember how long, somewhere early to mid-last century they found them. 1940s, she'll know. And they found these, and the, the point's this, that, when they actually investigated all these things, they were able to show that all these Old Testament manuscripts were written, existed hundreds of years before Jesus. Why is that important? Because they all contained prophecies about Jesus, written hundreds of years before Jesus walked the planet. Now, prior to founding the Dead Sea Scrolls, people used to come up with this, this argument, well, what if they rewrote the Old Testament to fit Jesus. Well, you can't do that because of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so that's, that's cool, isn't it? Anyway, the, my point is this, before I found all that out, is that the Bible contains all these prophecies that are fulfilled in Jesus. And those prophecies are written at least four to five hundred years before Jesus walked the earth. Some of those prophecies are written five to six thousand years before Jesus walked the earth. The earliest prophecy about Jesus is in, actually in Genesis chapter 3. And so the, 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 you've got all these prophecies about Jesus. Now, here's, here's the point. Well, actually, what I'll do, I'll read you some of those prophecies from Isaiah just so you can see how uh, Jesus fulfilled them. Isaiah 53. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Hey, guys, this wasn't a superstar. He wasn't, he wasn't worship idol. He wasn't investing in his skinny jeans. He, he, he was actually not very attractive. <coughs> he didn't go out of his way to be cool. Nothing in his appearance that we would desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, 
like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that was brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And it, and it goes on through a couple of chapters. Here's the point. All my wrongdoing, all, which we, we cheer about, all my wrongdoing, because you haven't got any, have you? Yeah. And all your wrongdoing, and all the wrongdoing that, that has existed, all my pain, all my hurt, all my lies, all my deceptions, all my deceit, all my revenge, all the things that I've ever done wrong, the consequences of that were placed on Jesus on the cross. Jesus was the one person in the whole of history who fulfilled prophecies accurately like this and in the finest detail. There are, listen to this number, 324 prophecies written between 5,000 years before Jesus was born and 500 years before he was born that Jesus fulfilled perfectly and accurately. Let me just uh, give you some gen on that. They got a mathematician to work out the probability of that happening. In fact, he, he didn't work out the probability of 324 prophecies. He worked out the probability of 12 of them. And the question was, what's the probability of that happening in one person perfectly? And the probability, according to this mathematician, of that happening is, are you all familiar with powers to the 10 and all that sort of thing? Is, it's 1 in 10 to the 17, 10 to the power of 17. Just to give you an idea of that, um, anybody got a pound coin? Well, no, show me a pound coin if you've got one. Pardon? Got Apple Pay, that, that, that won't work. <coughs> For this illustration, it doesn't work. Yeah, so thank you, thank you, Anna. So this is a pound coin. I'll keep it, thank you. <laughs> this is a pound coin. So the probability of Jesus fulfilling just 12 of those prophecies, if you took pound coins and you stacked them five high, you would more than cover the entire surface of the United Kingdom in pound coins, in stacks. That's the probability of 12 being fulfilled in one person. It was yours, was it? How did she get it? Right, I'm not going into that. 
And then we, we kind of get on our lovely friends, the Romans. Yeah? Wonderful people. Probably one of the most brutal military regimes that has ever walked the earth. And if the Romans knew how to do one thing apart from conquer, the other thing they knew how to do was execute at the end of their conquering. And here's the thing, that the Romans were really professional at crucifixion. And here's what they did to Jesus. Um, he'd had, like, sleepless night. He'd, he'd been beaten. In fact, you know, when they uh, whipped him, that wasn't just like whipping him. It, it was leather strips that had sharp pieces of glass or metal in the end of them. And so when they, they whipped him, it actually would tear the flesh. You'd, you'd do that, and the metal pieces would stick in the flesh. And then they'd rip it off. And so when Jesus had 39 of those, not only would muscles be exposed, but bones would be exposed. And then they strapped a heavy wooden bar to his back and made him walk through the streets with it on that back. Here's the thing. The guy that said Jesus was dead was a professional executioner. He'd seen lots of dead people. He knew Jesus was dead. And even though he knew Jesus was dead, they still stuck a spear in him to make sure. And when they stuck a spear in him to make sure, blood and water flowed down from his side because it went into the heart. That only happens after death. Jesus was dead. I mean, just, just for the sake of argument, let's say he never went on the cross. How many of you are trotting around three days later eating fish if you've had all that flesh ripped off your back? I mean, like, I have problems with paper cuts. <laughs> and then they wrap him, and I didn't know this till I, I read it, that in roughly 100 pound in weight of linen and spices, that's how they used to wrap them to put them in the tomb. So it's not just like a couple of cloths. It's 100 pound in weight with all these spices and all these ointments and everything on it. Here's the point. If he wasn't dead... That would have suffocated him to death anyway. And then, even if any of that existed, he then managed to be three days locked in darkness with no medical treatment at the end of all that. And yet walk out with no infection. The Romans were really professional at executing. You see, some people go around and say, well, you know, Jesus didn't really rise physically. He just rose spiritually. You might have heard that. that that's something that actually Jehovah's Witnesses believe, that Jesus never came back from the dead. No, Jesus rose physically, because that's what all those historical documents tell us. Honestly, given the fact that most people couldn't stick around with him during Jesus' life, do you think a worldwide religion would have been based on somebody who not raised from the dead after all that? 
I mean, even his closest followers, apart from John, ran away. Something happened between Jesus being arrested and Jesus going up to heaven that turned a bunch of 500 cowards, because it wasn't just the, the disciples, there was 500 of them following him at that time, turned a bunch of 500 cowards into people that changed the civilized world in 100 years. How does that happen? You know, people say, well, you know, the, his disciples, they could have made it up. Have you ever heard that? Yeah. Stupid, isn't it? Do you know, with the exception of John, every single one of them was executed for their faith. Not one of them said, I made it up. Not one of them said it isn't real. You know, like we talk about Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit comes. Every single one of them, apart from one, is executed. They tried to execute, apparently they tried to execute the John the Baptist. He just wouldn't die. Not, not John the, uh, uh, the Apostle John. Yeah. yeah, not John the Baptist. Good point. He got beheaded, <laughs> didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I try and remember this on those days when I don't quite, can't be bothered to get out of bed, you know. Like, these people died because this was real. Those manuscripts that were written whilst these people lived said in it, and Jesus on one occasion appeared to more than 500 people, most of whom are still alive. So go and ask them. It, it just, if you don't think, says that, go and read it. Says it in the Bible. Go and ask them. They're alive. Now, they're people that are friendly towards Jesus, aren't they? What about unfriendly people? What about people that don't really want this to be true because it would require you to change your life? What about those? Well, there's many examples of this, but let me just take one. He's a guy called Paul. Paul did not want this to be true. In fact, even after Jesus is from the dead, even after Jesus has gone back to heaven, Paul is going around murdering Christians who were refusing to deny that this is true. And he orchestrates this, this, this public, ex well, public execution by stoning of Stephen. And then he authorizes people to go out and arrest Christians. Why? Because he's a Jewish Pharisee. And if Jesus... Resurrection is real, then he has a problem because things have changed. Everything he's invested his life in is now not of value. And yet, Paul meets Jesus and turns to Jesus and travels around half the civilized world talking about Jesus and then he's executed for Jesus. Because he's real. Yes. And he's alive and he's still alive. He's a throwaway. 
Why don't we date Anno Buddha or Anno Muhammad? Why is it BC and AD? I know that they're trying to change that in schools, I'm trying to get that uh, out of the way we do, but for 2,000 years it's been AD and BC. I don't think we've done that for anybody else, have we? Something happened. Something happened that is unique. And that something that happened took a group of disciples, a group of followers, and this is the one that, that really clinches it for me. He took a group of cowards, a group of people who ran away, a group of people whose lives were under threat, a group of people who were in hiding, a group of people who were nobodies, a group of people who had no social standing, who had no families to bail them out, you know, rich families. A group of people like that, he took them and, he, and they, they were timid, they were fearful, they, they were denying Jesus, they were scattered all over the place and they ran And then one week later, those guys are all totally different. One week later, they're witnessing boldly in the public square to Jesus. Well, it's not one week later. 40 days later, after Pentecost, they're witnessing in the public square to Jesus. They're, 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 they're proclaiming him publicly. They've regrouped. They, they all, virtually without exception, die for their convictions. They never recanted, not even one of them. Not one nailed on a cross, not one burned at the stake, not one beheaded, not one of them said, I lied, because it's true. And it's true then, and it's true now. We only have one question. What are we going to do about this Jesus who raised from the dead? And we can choose to follow him or we can turn our backs on him. But if we turn our backs on him, it doesn't change the fact that he rose from the dead. What are we going to do about this Jesus? What are you going to do about this Jesus who asks you to follow him? What are you going to do about this Jesus who is your only way of dealing with all the wrong stuff you've done in your life? What are you going to do about this Jesus who one day you'll stand before and give an account of your life? What are you going to do? Because by then it's too late to do anything. And you know the amazing thing? Jesus did all that because he loved you. And Jesus did all that so that you could have a relationship with a real living Jesus right now. So what are you going to do? Are you going to follow him? Are you going to make him Lord like those disciples did? Are you going to walk away?
Jesus gives you the option of walking away. Because he doesn't want fake love, he wants real. He really does want followers. And it's not blind faith, it's faith in facts. You don't have the option of just washing it under the carpet. So I'm going to pray. And then as I pray, I want you to um, close your eyes, everybody. And if you've not said this prayer, but you want to decide right now that you want to follow Jesus, then you say this prayer as that first step. And it is only a first step because it's about following, not just a one-off thing. There's a cost that goes with it. There's a cost that went with it for everybody that's ever followed Jesus. So let's pray. We'll all pray together. Father God, I thank you for sending Jesus to pay for everything that I've done wrong and to die for me so that I might have a relationship with you. I choose now to say sorry for everything I've done wrong. And I ask you, and I make you Lord of my life. I choose to follow you. And I ask you to give me new birth as a follower of you by your Holy Spirit so that I might be born again and raised to new life through Jesus Christ. Amen. Everybody keep your eyes shut. Okay, so if you said that prayer for the first time or you've been away from Jesus for a long time and you, you were just renewing that commitment, nobody's going to see you except me. So can you, put, can you put your hand up if you said that prayer for the first time or renewing the commitment? Okay, thank you. Can you keep it up? Because I might have missed it. I might have been looking at it. Okay. Okay, thank you. Okay, so we've logged that and we have a gift for you um, which we'll, we'll, we'll get to you as soon as this meeting's finished. But what I want you to do is I want you to tell the people that you came with what you've just prayed. Is that okay? Because one of the most important things about making this real for the rest of your life is you tell people, you tell someone, so that they can be there to help you take the next steps. And we want to be there to help you take the next <coughs> steps too. Amen. Amen. You can open your eyes. Can I have the worship team back up, please? You know, one of the um, really important things about 
being a Christian that I learnt when I was that young 14-year-old. And if you remember what year it was, you can now work out how old I am. Despite the fact Joyce has already hinted. <laughs> we get revenge in September for jo on Joyce, by the way. <laughs> but one of the things I learnt really early on in that uh, youth group was it's so much better to do the journey with other people than to try and do it on your own. If you try and do it on your own, the enemy of your soul is going to steal what you've just committed to. That's why it's so important that we are part of a body, part of a church, part of a church family. And I, I learned that when I was 14, and it stood me in the best stead. Somebody told me that the week after. I went back to the youth group, by the way, and said, Look, this is what I've done. I've said the prayer. And they said, right, now you need to tell everybody you said the prayer. I'm going, no way, I'll tell you. <laughs> so I told them, and they gave me this advice. That do the journey with other people. Don't, don't hide it, because it'll be stolen. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship.